talk about today. So good morning. My name is John. As Jack had mentioned, I'm the children's youth and family pastor. So I'm typically in a student classroom or in kids ministry or helping with check and that sort of thing. And so it's really cool. It's an honor to be with y'all in this space to see some adult faces and get to speak um, and talk with you this morning. I hope that you're encouraged by what will be shared this morning. But also, um, a couple weeks ago, we actually started this journey. We started discussing and talking through the life of Job. And I don't know if any of you have heard or read the story of the life of Job. Um, it can be a pretty big downer. Like, <laughs> it's not necessarily the most exciting book in the Bible. And if you're watching from home online, by the way, hello, great to see you on camera. So you can see me. I um, want to make sure I don't forget that. But this is a book in the Bible that's very, very, very interesting. And as Jack preached the first week, he kind of went backwards and started at the end and led us forward. And Silas gave us a great introduction and gave us a little bit of background on Job's life. This is a book that leaves you with questions. If you've ever read through it or you may have read parts of scripture or you might have even heard a quote from a book of Job, you'll understand that this is a book that talks about a man that lived in misery. A man that once had everything, he had a ton of things, he was blessed, right? The Bible says that he was the best, like best known man on the known east, This was a great man of God, and he had everything he ever needed. In the scripture that that Jack just read in Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, it's important before we read that, before we dig into that scripture, to know this, that I think this is true about where we're going to go this morning, is that God calls us, and God is calling us, and will continue to call us to be present body, soul, spirit, and mind with those who are suffering. Like, no matter the depth of hurt, we are called to sit and grieve with those that are grieving, our brothers and sisters. And I'm going to expand that, because oftentimes we have brothers and sisters, we might think of those that are in this room as the body of Christ. But these are people that may not even be connected to the body of Christ as well. People that don't necessarily call God their God, Maybe they may not believe the same things that we believe. Maybe they don't have the same values as we have. But we are still called to sit, to grieve, to understand where our community is at. And how we do that is really important. God calls us to first listen, then empathize, and then encourage. Right? We're not meant to go at life alone. And I believe part of our responsibility is to seek those that are, that are alone and go, how do I pull you in? How can I help you walk this life better? I used to belong to um, another community in California, church community, large church, just a few thousand people. And in that church, what, one of the things I loved about this church community is that it was really, and some of you might have come from other church community backgrounds. I won't just assume you, you were all born and raised at Bethany Northeast. But One thing that I remember about that church community is that it was really, really easy to hide in the back. It was really, really easy to actually hide in the middle, and it was easy to hide in the front because they had this stadium seating, and they had the lights were dim, and it was just so easy to walk in and then feel like I can hide anywhere I want. The the goal was to have people feel like they belong, like let's blow this thing up so as many people as possible can fit in, so everyone feels encouraged when they come to this building but it left, at some points, it left people feeling like I can just come, or it left people entering going, I can come and hide. 
that would later be revealed in smaller groups. I feel like I just come here because I can hide. I can sit in the back, and I can just kind of do my own thing. And while that's okay, and no one likes to be spotlighted, right? That's embarrassing. You can a lot of times unintentionally do life alone and go through things on your own unnecessarily, just because it feels familiar and because you can get away with it. We're called to mourn with those who mourn. And the questions I have for us this morning is, are we willing to sit with our brother and sister in the body of Christ or not? And are we willing to let them sit with us? Uh, Something that rang true about me and how I've been raised and about just my DNA, and everyone's got a different makeup, everyone's got a different Enneagram, if you're really into that, is that's, that's still a thing, right? If I ask what your Enneagram is, you could probably tell me, and go, I, two, and I got your wing, too, like, I have a wing one. I said one time I was, like, a seven with a wing three, and someone was like, that's impossible, you can't have that, it's, that's not how the Enneagram works. I was like, well, I've been doing this my whole life, and the Enneagram, this is what I am, and it was, I was wrong. Anyways, I don't know what I am. Jack, I probably a seven. Silas, probably seven. Anyway, the point of that, I have no clue where I was going with that, except I just got distracted, but everybody, <laughs> everybody interprets those things a little bit different. In the life of Job and in the book of Job, this is part of the scripture that I, I, I love reading through this because it gives me a little bit of conversation. It gives me a little bit of insight into the character of God and how he relates, but also how he converses with those that are... are angelic beings, but also how he relates to those that are human. It's really interesting. So if you like that kind of scripture, if you like to hear the type of scripture where God is speaking to you and there's a conversational piece to it, this is going to be something that excites you. I think that God desires our, di- our dialogue. That's one of the first things I want to pull out as we jump in, is God desires to talk with us. He does desire to speak with us. He does desire to hear from us. He does desire for us to ask questions. These are good things. How many of you, just by show of hands, have, have read scripture outside of Job and just had, have outstanding questions like, I don't understand X, Y, Z, right? You don't have to share your question. My hand is up too. I read the Bible with questions. I wonder, God, is this who, you, who you've made me to be because I've read scripture this way? God, is this what this means because I understand you this way? All of these things play into how we understand the Bible. When you read through Job, you will be very confused if you read through it just through one singular lens. And Silas mentioned that last week. I'm going to pull another quote from last week that Silas said. He said, there's a distinction between reading the Bible and reading the Bible as Scripture. All right, so how do you read it? I think in this Scripture, there's an invitation to us. And I use that word a lot when reading Scripture because... I feel as if we need, I need to feel invited to Scripture. Like if I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to read this text so that I can feel smarter and feel like I can shoot down all the bad questions that people that aren't like me ask, this is going to be really boring really soon. I read this so that I can understand the character of God. I believe we all read Scripture in a way that helps us understand not just the knowledge of God, but also who God is as a character, but also who he is in our lives. And as we read this book of Job, I want to put on a different, I want to help us to view this in a different lens. I'm not sure how you come 
to understand this book or how you come to understand the scripture and understand Job's friends. But how we do that, our perspective is really important. The ordering of this book, very important. The ordering of the events in the book, even the ordering of where Job is placed in the Bible is super unique to me. First off, we hear that Job is suffering. So we get to hear the language of suffering from Job. We get to hear a part of what happens in that suffering. And then we get to hear a little bit of back and forth of questioning. So we have this raw account of a man who's done nothing wrong by all accounts of Scripture, and you hear his complaints, his suffering, but then there's that, but God, you're still good, peace. The book that comes after that, Psalms, which then we learn how to lament in a very poetic way, a way that we have maybe not have heard yet in Scripture. It's a book that literally teaches us how to lament and how to carry suffering and then how to bring praise and maybe a song might rise out of that as a sign of worship in the midst of misery. The ordering of this, the Bible and where Job is placed is super important. So allow me to reintroduce the friends, and I'm only going to do this once, so you guys get your giggles out because I get names terribly wrong. Um, Job's friends, Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Nanamite. <laughs> I will then refer to them, I will now refer to them as Job's three friends the rest of the time, so get that out of the way. So Job's friends in this, in our text, as I'm going to dive right in, I think that they offer, they hope to offer Job some advice. I think they hope to offer him some solutions to life. I think that they hope to offer him really concrete details of, hey, this is what you did wrong. Let's help you get out of it. I think they meant well. So in fact, I phrased this as I begin to read it, understand it for myself. I wrote down Job's well-meaning friends. I think they intended well, well intending. And I think we all have friends like that, that mean well or have well intentions. And um, I want to ask you to raise your hands because I think we do. And one of, one of the things that I can recall to memory um, from a, a lifetime ago, uh, about 11 years, 10 years, is a time where I had friends that I think intended well, but ended up causing a lot of harm and trauma. Um, and I say that lightly. Um, in California, we had these things called lakes. I don't know if you've ever been to a lake before or a body of water. Um, but we had these things called lakes, and we went down to the lake, and there was a barbecue happening, had lots of friends, there was a safe time, there were, there were actual adults and parents there, so we were co-mingling with adults as 20-year-olds, and we were having a great time. We were hanging out, and I noticed there was music, there was barbecue, then I noticed there was jet skis. And I don't know if you heard the story before, but... You're going to hear it again. <laughs> and I went down as I got closer to the water. I was like, oh my goodness, look at that jet ski. And my friend's dad said, hey, John, like, you want me to take you out for a ride? Let me show you how this thing works. I said, sure. I get on the back. It's a two-person jet ski. And has anyone ever been on a jet ski before or a boat of some sort? Okay. A lot of us. Okay. I see some nudging like, yeah, go ahead. Tell your story. And I get on the jet ski and... He's taking me off, and we're going deep in. And before I get on the jet ski, I should point out, I put on a life jacket. It's a schmedium, which means it's like a middle between a small and medium. And I'm like an extra, extra large. And so clearly didn't fit, didn't buckle. But I put it on because I was being safe. 
And I get on the jet ski and I'm going. And he's like, man, this is, I'm like, this is so much fun. He's like, let me show you what it can do. Get back, we're done. Get back to the shore. I get off. I'm walking over, man. What a great time. What a great memory. Let's end this on a good note. I just did something I'd never done before. It was really terrifying, but I did it. And then as I head back, my friend goes, hey, I'm about to get on the jet ski. Do you want to come with me? And I go, well, I just, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I just had a really good experience. I don't want you to ruin this. Like, I don't want you to do anything that's just going to throw me off. He's like, no, 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 seriously, I don't want to go alone. And so I go, okay, I'll get back on the jet ski with you. So I get back on the jet ski. His little sister comes and says, hey, I want to come too. Okay, this is a two-person jet ski. I'm like, hey, this is a two-person jet ski. <laughs> you, can't, you can't come on. She's like, oh, it's fine. She comes on rides in the back, and I just go, anyone ever have that moment like, this is not going to end well. Like, I know this is going to end well. We get on the jet ski, we're going. He's making these figure eights, and I'm just going, I've never been on a jet ski before. Is this normal activity? And I can hear his sister going, what are you doing? And I go, well, that's not a good sign because she should know how a jet ski works. This is her, jet, this is her family's jet ski, so something's not happening that needs to be happening on this jet ski. And as we're out and we're going and doing figure eights, she goes, oh, I can hear her. You're trying to catch a wave and have us catch some air, aren't you? And I go, please don't do that. Please don't do that. We're so far out in the middle of the water. I have a life jacket on, but please. And, of course, he's going crazy, hits a wave, creates a wave, comes back, hits it, and we just go sideways into the water, ears filled with water. I don't know which way is up. I'm in the water with my life jacket, and I go, God, if I make it, I promise I will work this into every sermon illustration that I ever preached in the for the entirety of my life, and here I am doing it. So I made it, but I, I kind of just had to figure out which way was up, and as I realized my life jacket actually saved me, I start holding my friend down so I can swim, and beyond that, there's a lot of things that happen. It, it filled with water. We couldn't make it ashore. It was 10 minutes out, and that was, caused a lot of pain and funny stories. But I think that friend, I tell that jokingly, because I think that friend meant well. I think he said, I want to have fun with you. I want to torture you, but I want to have fun with you. The only way I know how to make have fun with you is to catch a wave and see you fall in the water. Live recklessly. I think he meant well, but ended up causing hurt and pain in the process. Here's some other real-life examples that you might be familiar with. People who jump in the kitchen while you're cooking as a way to say, I want to help, and they end up making things worse. This might have happened over the holidays. Uh, maybe people who give you unsolicited financial advice that you don't ask for. My inbox is full of people trying to sell me crypto and get me on the market. I don't understand it. I'm sure it's the way of the future. All right, people, this is a dad move. That encourage you to take back roads as you're driving. How did you get here? Let me, let me tell you another way to get here, even though you already have your way of getting to where you're going. All right, our people, this one touches probably close to my heart. People might tell you how to raise your children, or people might try to tell you or ask you, when are you having children, right? Sigurd and I, we avoided that question up front. We've married five years. We have a four- and two-year-old. You do the math. We, we skipped that question at dinner quickly. So there is no questioning that. We have our children. But that question of people just wanting and, and asking these, they mean well, but that can even cause pain if you're trying to have them. That can cause pain if you've lost them. That can cause pain if it's not something that's on your, your radar. They mean it well by asking, but that can cause hurt. I'll go a little serious here. How about people that mean well that are trying to tell you how to grieve? 
well, at least you didn't have to go through, or let me tell you my story so I know it's going to be fine for you, or like, well, at least you still have this happening, so I know this stinks right now, but like, you'll be fine. Like, just ways that they mean well, but they're really making it worse. In the process, maybe well-meaning friends that try to assign pain or grief, and they try to tell you, well, here's what caused it. Here's what you need to stop doing. Right? These are people in your life that you trust and that you love. Maybe some that you know, maybe some that you don't. But they mean well. They end up causing pain and hurt. What I appreciate most about Job's friends, right off the bat here, is that they sat in silence with him. They were present with him. They sat with seven days and seven nights. They were present. They were silent. And I'll be honest, that's really awkward. But if you're in that moment and you're, you're, you're grieving, it's really comforting. If you're the friend, I say awkward, that's also painful. It's also you put yourself in a situation where you're sitting and not necessarily opening your mouth, but you're feeling everything your friend is feeling. Reverse that. Maybe you're the one sitting. Those that are surrounded, they're feeling what you're feeling. You might be feeling a little bit of shame or grief. There's so much that goes into just being present and being a good comfort and a good friend in the midst of those that are suffering. I think one of the most important things that happens in that moment of silence, in that moment of just being present, I think transformation happens. And I, I've used, I've said this before, but I think in the body of Christ, it's, it's easy to say this. It's easy to say, allow God to speak to your heart. Allow the Holy Spirit to move, in my background, allow the Holy Spirit to really move through you. Let him speak to your heart and spirit. But for those that don't necessarily have that language, how do we be present with them? And how do we use language that helps them? That's, that's not necessarily wording, right? How do we sit with them? How are we present with them? And we don't have those words to say. Job 2.12 says this, that his friends, they tore their clothes and they wept. Physically, they're like, we're here with you. This is our sign of grief as a way to connect you, as a way to say, hey, we are in this together. I'm going to add this too. Job had... Lots of money, lots of land, thousands of animals. You don't need a history lesson. He had everything. And out of all those things he had, you can imagine what comes with that. Friends, popularity, everything. Just think of all the friends that he might have known, all the people of the people, the people that knew Job. All right, this man is known. He's a godly man, but he's known. Yet he has three friends that are willing to come and sit with him. In silence. He's known as a godly man and all these. He's known as a great man, but he has three friends. When everyone else has an opportunity to really galvanize, like come together around Job, he just has those three. It bothers me when I read it. I go, why didn't he have more? You have all that going on. He only had three friends. And so I want to paint these friends not just a negative light, 
Because I think as a true friend, you want to know who are those people that are going to come around you when you need them the most, when you're feeling your worst. These three friends were present with the father of ten dead children. They're present with someone who had lost an empire, who was bankrupt, everything had crumbled. They're present with a friend who physically, his body refused to heal. Nothing they could have given or offered would have helped him feel better in that moment or would have helped his body heal. Right? There's almost there's no better time for Job to have these friends around. In his lifetime, one, one could argue. I think to add, one of the things that I believe that becomes very difficult in these moments where we sit in silence and we really just come to comfort and aid friends that are hurting is the point of exhaustion. The point of just feeling like, I want to do more, but I can't. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but pain that can't be talked about, pain that almost, as Job, as it says in Job, too great for words, it's hard to sit in that. Exhaustion plays a huge factor in that. I'll take you down memory lane one last time here. Um, years ago, I was uh, a children's pastor at uh, another church, and uh, I was in Bonnie Lake, and I remember this time very vividly. It's interesting how the Holy Spirit will work to refresh your mind and, and highlight things that I feel aid and aid and healing, if that makes sense. And I remember this being very, very, um, a very, very important weekend. It was a Saturday. Everybody was gone in the church. My pastor was like, hey, do you want to preach to about four people? I was like, absolutely, I'll do it. And um, I did it, and I did it. And during the sound and the worship was my, the current youth pastor and his wife. And then a little a baby, his name was Baby, baby Huddy. That's a little hip-hop reference if you're not familiar. Don't look it up. And he, Kid Cuddy, Huddy. So they listened as I, as I preached to just a group, just a small group of people, and it was the first time I, I remember just, just being completely nervous and just not knowing what to say, like not knowing how to communicate. And they were there, and they, they encouraged me. They lifted me up. and like, you did a great job. Like, we'd do that again. That's awesome. I'm like, oh, you guys are so sweet. And Sunday happened, and Monday happened, and... On Monday, my senior, my leader, my pastor called me, and he said, hey, um, I don't know if you watched the news, um, we can't find, we've, we found Josh's, his name was Josh, we, we found Josh's truck, um, but we can't find Vanessa, his wife. Um, we're looking, we cannot find them. Um, it looks like his truck is just demolished underneath the bridge, and I go, Happy Monday. And I go, okay, let's, let's, maybe someone stole their truck, right? Maybe someone stole their truck. Maybe they're away at home. Who knows? He's, he tells me, I'm going to go look under the garage and see if I can find any, anything, any, see if anyone's home. And he looks, hour goes by, a couple hours go by, a few hours go by. Uh, I'm at home and I don't hear anything. And I call back and I go, what's going on? And he's like, I'm, I'm sorry, bro. I didn't, I didn't call back. Um, we can't find any of them because they were in the truck. 
and the truck almost in a weird accident, it went under a bridge. They were working on the bridge actively and a slab of concrete came and just destroyed the cab. I mean, just destroyed it. And I got to tell you, in that moment, um, on the phone call, the, the surreal, like, experience of hearing that and just going, what the heck? Like, what is happening? Youth pastors, present in their community, good people on accounts, just had, a, like, a new baby boy, and just like that, freak accident. If they were 0.1 second, maybe slower or faster. Who knows, right? These thoughts race through my mind, and as I go, okay, like, I need help trying to process this. He goes, just come over. There's a bunch of us here. So we, we go to my lead pastor's house. There's, there's students there. There's youth leaders there. Our whole staff is there. And we're sitting around, and everyone is quiet. No one is saying a word. I remember walking in, and I remember my, my pastor and his wife just, like, literally the warm embrace of a hug was, like, the only thing that was unspoken that felt good. And there were moments through that time together as there were sniffles and crying and we were just, what do we do? It wasn't how are we going to have youth service. It wasn't like how are we going to continue to do church. Like I promise you that was on no one's mind. It was how do we get through this together? And we sat there, we processed silently. No one said anything. I remember my pastor then leading out saying, how are you feeling, John? And I could not put it in words. And I think some of us have stories that are similar. Some of us have traumatic and tragic stories that cause grief, that cause pain, where it's hard to sit. It's hard to be the one that's receiving that grief, but it's also, it's equally hard to do that if you know someone and you're sitting in that community. I think sitting and grieving collectively has a large effect on our soul and on our spirit. And I can replace that word with collectively with individually, right? So sitting and grieving individually has a large effect on our soul and spirit. Sometimes we need time to go away and just figure it out right here. Just me and God, or just me and myself. I just need my music. I just need whatever. I just need to do this thing individually. I need some time and some space. But I can't tell you the importance of doing this thing, sitting and agreeing with someone who's suffering, who's going through it collectively. I can't tell you just the amount of healing and just love that that allows to be poured into your spirit and soul that only God can provide. But he does it through our friends. He does it through our community. It's a process. So as I look at Job's friends, and I look at their intentions, their well intentions, they did intend to be there and allow him to process, and they sat silently with him. There's a point in understanding Job's friends where they lost this, this aspect of empathy and that's when they begin talking. <laughs> See, I thought when you, when you sit in silence and you have this moment together, it almost, you almost 
You want to believe that it's going to lead you and to say something really wise and profound. And in their well intentions, they actually gave speeches, they uttered things that, that caused them to blame Job for what was happening. Well, Job, maybe you should go back and check this. Maybe, Job, you did that wrong. Maybe, Job, and the thing that's interesting, and these are all things in the past that they're hoping to write, to make right for in the future. These are things that they said he's done, and they're not helping. Job 16.2 says this. Job gets tired of it, and he says, you are miserable comforters, all of you. And I think one of the mistakes that Job's friends made... Without trying, they did this. They confused comfort. They confused comfort with their knowledge of what was happening. Right? I want to understand so much what is happening. I want to understand this grief and this pain so much that I'm more willing to let my head fill with the knowledge of what is happening. Well, well, well if I just knew the why... Well, if I can just see the end result, if I can just know what's happening, the what, 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 and the why, 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 and if we're not careful, and Job's friends weren't careful, you'll see here, they allowed that to really give way for their misinterpretation of who God is. There's a a phrase called bad theology, and Job's friends really used some bad theology. They allowed what was happening to inform their thoughts about God and his character. And I was honestly feeling that I felt that way. I've done that before. Where I've gone, I feel this way. God, this sucks. I'm yelling. I'm upset. God, you said this, was, this wasn't who you were. Who are you then? Make this happen then. And I've used that language. And in ways that I had to kind of go back and retract, I went, okay, God, I know this is who you are. So I need to believe this about you and get my mind right and get around some people who are going to really hold my arms up and walk with this, walk through this thing with me. That what that you're surrounded by that kind of leads as your coping mechanism to comfort that could be what you read on the news. Maybe it's the gossip that you hear. Maybe it's the entertainment that you see on TV. A lot of that informs some of our pain. How we cope is really important. I think it's in, in our decision to truly lament. And it's not not asking the why questions or the what questions. But I think it's accepting the fact that we may not have all the answers to the questions. I, I may never know. I, I, I remember this happening with the accident that I just shared in that story. I remember we collectively said this and we all had a moment of praise God. And it felt weird, and I don't care, but I'll share it with you guys because it's, it's fine with the group that really suffered. We said, thank God they're all together. We could not imagine. We're like, if Vanessa or if baby Hudson, man, that would have that been a grief and a retelling of that story to people. That we could not. That would be hard. We said, thank you, God. They are in heaven. And that, that is, that is our, that, that's, that's our silver lining right there. There were many more questions that followed. And I don't say that to, to, to go, ha-ha, like at least we have this, because there's not that aha moment. There's not that moment of at least we can move on or at least we can move to the next part of grieving for everything that goes on. I don't mean to say that for every situation. 
But there is a point of understanding that we will not have all the answers. Last thing here that I want to point out is the importance of being patient with ourselves in our suffering and patient with those that are suffering. It's really easy. I talked about Enneagrams and personalities. I think we all do this based on our upbringing, based on who we are, but it's easy for myself to, to create a timeline for suffering. Well, you've been suffering how long? You've been dealing with this for about a month now? Can you like, pick yourself up? Can you cut your hair? Can we go? It's like that's, that's not what's intended for pain, for suffering, for comfort. That's not, that's not the way to go. Patience doesn't set a timeline. Patience is long-suffering. It's, it's suffering with that community, with that person, and allowing that in return. It's being patient. Job 2.13, they sat on the ground, again, for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word. Sympathy and comfort, it can take many forms, and we look at the response of those three friends, and I, I feel like truly in my heart of hearts, I think they, shoot, they showed us what it looks like to be a good friend, what it looks like to be comforting. I think they intended well. I think they had the best sought out in mind. They, they, these, were, these were friends that had other things going on. What a humbling thing to come and put life on hold for seven days. Imagine thinking seven days and going, I've not accomplished anything in seven days except for sitting and mourning with my friend. Try reporting that back to other people in your community, going, you did what? With who? That Job guy? Hasn't he, didn't he get cursed? They listened, they waited patiently, and they waited through these periods of silence. Of course, they chose to speak. And in their well intentions, they began to try to create situations and answers to questions. And that is the temptation. I feel like as a community, as friends who sit with those that are suffering, we have to be careful not to create and not to try to find solutions. In our exhaustion, not to try to find solutions to the suffering of those that are around us. It's tempting. It's tempting to go, here is what's happening. I know what to do. I'll, I'll get this. It's, it's so tempting. But it's, it's so much more rewarding to just go, I'm just going to sit in silence. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be a comforter for you. I'm going to just walk this road with you. And my comfort to you, right, it's not graded on the best answer I have for solving your problem. That's not it. My comfort, for to, you is my, my comfort to you is my presence, which, by the way, is modeled through Scripture. This is how God comforts us. I'm not saying it's impossible. I've never heard God. I've never had a question I've asked God where he came down and said, X, Y, Z, John, that's what you do. That's not how I receive my best affirmation or comfort in my moments of weakness. I think he models that well for us. And in return, we should model that and also receive that. So as I close here, what do the friends of Job, what do they teach us? They teach us how to respond with presence. How might you be present with a friend or a community that's suffering? They teach us that empathy is better shown in action versus by words. Better shown in action. Again, context, out of the body of Christ. 
if I see a friend that's suffering, that I have no clue what their background is, this scripture is powerful, and God might be leading you to share a scripture, but I can guarantee you the person that is unhoused is probably going to appreciate a pair of socks or a hot meal. They're going to want to see your empathy. They're going to want to see Jesus in you more than they want to hear something, a drive-by scripture. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's how I feel. I think we should be showing. And then once we have that presence with that person, then we can begin to unravel things with them. But it's only in that moment where we feel like God is leading us to. Because we're not trying to solve a problem. We're trying to be present and we're trying to be Jesus in their lives. And then lastly, they teach us to be long-suffering and patient with our brothers and sisters. This is a lesson that, as I've read, has taught me a great deal. But also, as I read it and as I reflect on it, it's, it's actually caused me to look backwards and go, where did I need to be a little bit more patient through a process when my friend was suffering? Or where did I need to let someone, allow someone space to come in to my life and sit in my circle and do this process with me? Have I rejected that? Have I allowed that? So that's the question I have for you all today is, are you allowing your community around you to galvanize, to come around you and really lift you up and build you up in your moments of weakness, which there's no high, there's no worse or bad or whatever, there's, there's weakness, there's pain. That's it. There's no scale to it. Are you allowing those to come around you and truly minister to you? And are you being an effective minister of, and comforting to those that are in pain around you in every sense of the context? So I'm going to pray for us here, and then I'm going to invite Austin up. God, we thank you for um, this morning. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit. God, as we... Um, continue down and dig into the life of Job. Um, God, I ask you to help us. We come to you humbly. God, point out those areas in our life of, of where we just need to be better comforters, but God, also we need to receive the comforting better. It's easy to try to go life alone and go, I don't need it. It's fine. I can do it on my own. This is little. But God, we don't want to live life that way. We, we want to be comforted. We want to be in line with your spirit. We want to be in line with who you say we are. God, we thank you so much for this invitation and this part of scripture. And I pray that it challenges us through this week and through this month. In Jesus' name, amen.